Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. We want to be able to create technology and businesses that address the needs of people to live full lives of dignity and allow them to go and chase their dreams into the future in a sustainable manner. And I think that those of us that have the luck to be able to make conscious choices of between two things, we should make the conscious choice. It's a luxury to be able to do that. So do it. Hi, everyone. This episode focuses on the opportunity to invest in buildings, cities, infrastructure, and air conditioning. Why? Well, for one thing, 40% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from the built environment. And according to the Climate Group, those emissions are set to double by 2050 if they're left unchecked. Why else? Well, because it's been crazy hot this summer and the record heat waves we've experienced are unfortunately just the beginning. And so I was thrilled to talk with Christian Hernandez-Gallardo, co-founder and partner of venture firm 2150 that's investing in making cities more efficient, sustainable, and resilient. And also with Daniel Betts, founder of Blue Frontier, a startup that is set to disrupt the air conditioning market in a very good way. As investment in urban infrastructure begins to take off, a real transformation is possible, and companies like Blue Frontier offer a glimpse of what the future can hold. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's dive in. Christian and Daniel, welcome to Invested in Climate. So great to have you both here today. Good to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for being here. So much to talk about. Where do I find you both today? Let's start with that. I am actually sitting in in Panama City, Panama. That's where I was born. I'm original from. Yesterday was my birthday, so I decided to come down for the weekend. All right. Happy birthday. <laughs> so, well, we'll save you our, our rendition <laughs> of, you. of singing to you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Christian, are you in London these days? I am in a very balmy 31 degree London, which we <laughs> leads nicely into a conversation on why the rest of the world is going to need cooling sooner rather than later. All right. Well, we will dive into it. Christian, why don't we start with you? You are a founder and an investor of a firm called 2150. Perhaps you can get us started by just a little bit of explanation. What is 2150 and what's the investment thesis that's driving your work? 2150 is a European-based climate tech venture capital firm, which we unveiled last year, 2021. Fund One is a 270 million euro vehicle. 
And our core focus is to invest in technologies that can help make the broad urban environment efficient, resilient, and sustainable. And I say broad on purpose because we, we don't only focus on the buildings. We focus on the infrastructure, the pipes that power the city, how you build, what materials you use, then how you actually move things in and out of cities, how you keep, um, how you keep buildings warm or cold, and then how you keep people healthy, safe, and secure. So it's actually a vertical fund, but I, I always argue it's the world's largest vertical fund. The team is split between Copenhagen and London, but we invest thematically across big problem sets on a global basis. We have investments from... British Columbia and Canada, all the way to Hong Kong. Fantastic. I'd love to learn a little bit more and really try to get to the understanding of why. Why is this your investment thesis? Why focus on cities and city infrastructure? I think some people refer to this space as the built environment. I wonder if, if that's a useful term for you. But really, you know, from a climate impact standpoint, why cities? Yeah, maybe I'll tell it through my own personal voyage and, and to like from climate curious to climate active. Um, so I went to Princeton to an exec ed uh, program on, at the Adlinger Center for the Environment. I was climate curious. It was paid for by the World Economic Forum, and there, it was free. And I just wanted to learn. And I came out of that with two realizations. One, the famous McKinsey stack graph that shows that there's no single technology that solves the problem. You need to deploy a lot of things at scale quickly. And then secondly, uh, getting to meet these climate tech entrepreneurs, this is what, four years ago, who were all trying to raise Series A funding, and literally nobody wanted to fund them. They were deep tech and climate tech. So realizing that there was an opportunity in that space to do the job that I love, which is backing amazing entrepreneurs, but actually do so for technologies that could have an impact. So I spent about a year, uh, a bit more, figuring out where to focus on, like, where's the mismatch, right? And then there's two mismatches that I identified. One is greenhouse gas emissions coming from the built world. So cement and steel and how we heat and cool our buildings, how we transport things around cities. Buildings alone are about 21% of greenhouse gas emissions. But there's a massive mismatch which, with where venture capital is being allocated. Only about 4% of venture capital dollars in climate tech between 2013 and 2021 went into the built environment. 60% went into mobility. So secondly, um, if you look at the IEA's uh, database of technologies, and you literally sort the list by mature and ready to deploy and impact, the top 10 technologies all end up being in the built environment. So for me, we need to back science projects that can help us in 10 years time, but we need to deploy stuff today. And the built environment, that's that space where A, there's market demand accelerating, B, there's technologies that are ready and available, and C, there's a need for more capital. Through that voyage, ended up meeting my now partners who had come at it from different angles, and we decided to go to market with a specific focus on this theme. Been other funds since then that they're also trying to attack this opportunity, but I think we need more. We need more generalists. We need more climate tech, broad climate tech funds, and we need more specialists for the urban environment. If you don't mind, I'd like to get even more personal just for a minute because you know that was a really strong analytical explanation and makes a lot of sense. And it's a very strong investment case. But I know that you've worked at some big tech companies. We overlapped for a bit at Google. And you have a lot of different options for how you spend your time. And you know you have quite accomplished background and a lot of different possibilities. I happened to follow you on Twitter and I saw something that really caught my eye. You shared a personal story about watching a climate change documentary with your kids. And perhaps that moment offers more of a glimpse into the window of, of your motivations and why you're choosing to focus on investing in climate founders and really what made you be climate curious or climate determined, climate committed to begin with. Fair enough. Let's make it personal. I mean, I think 
there's a seminal moment. I think it's probably reading uh, David Wallace Wade's book, uh, Uninhabitable Earth, which scared the living daylights out of me. And I think everybody should read it because it doesn't offer any solutions, right? It just tells you how bad it could be. Your blood will boil. And I think that kind of said, okay, I, I've always known there's a problem. How big is it? And what can we do about it rather than sitting passively in the sidelines? I know that venture capital is a vehicle for change. And I had the realization that I want to use that vehicle for change for impact, specifically around the climate space. And I think the more uh, somebody told me this early on, and it's so true, the more you get into the climate space, the more depressed you should be, because you realize that there's honestly very small chance that we hit our 2030 targets. Mitigating or taking out 25 gigatons out of the global economy is going to be really hard. But getting stuck in that is kind of defeatist, right? I've always been probably a bit too action focused. I want to do something about it. And yes, I have three young kids who um, are extremely proud when I tell them what I do and they go tell their friends and they wear the t-shirt and the caps and talk about all the companies that we back. It means something to them that what I do day to day can have an impact beyond us financially or us in London or us in the UK. It's a, it's a global problem. And so the tweet you mentioned was, uh, there's a BBC documentary series that's uh, available right now. And it starts with the 80s and 90s in the US, how you know effectively um, the oil and gas companies were paying lobbyists to actually create the, the climate change narrative and how, as an example, Al Gore went to Kyoto with his knees cut off. Like he was not, he had no, not, not only did he not have a mandate, Congress had explicitly denied him a mandate to go to Kyoto to negotiate. This is when he was vice president. Correct. Kyoto, back when he was vice president. Yeah. And he was leading the, the US delegation to, for the Kyoto Protocol. And I finished that episode, like literally in like tears, but like of rage, like, holy crap, we knew about this. We've known about it for so long. And yet we did nothing. And you said that he went to Kyoto with his knees cut off. It was Republicans and folks opposing climate action in Congress and in the US government. He got zero votes in favor of giving him power to go to Kyoto. So it was actually a bipartisan effort, if you will. Wow. I've actually been waiting to watch uh, episode two of that series. I think I need to get some uh, emotional stability before I go tackle version two. But I think it still continues today. Like uh, every day, you like, look around and you realize the planet's burning, and yet some see it as a, as a woke view on, on the planet, or some see it as people uh, screaming wolf. That drives me to action, right? Because the faster we can act, even if it's a minority of us that act, the faster we can actually have at least some level of impact. You know, you said something there that I'll take issue with. We won't debate it now, but you said that the more climate focused you are, the more depressed you're likely to be. So far, I found it to be the opposite, both with my own experience as well as with founders and investors and other folks that I'm talking to is that, you know, perhaps they need the optimism to fuel the work. But I think that you're also then surrounding yourself with people that are making a lot of progress. And just that human talent and the capability that's being invested in climate, I think is really powerful and inspiring. And so I've so far seen it to be the more more you focus on climate, the more optimistic you might actually be. You should be depressed, which would have been my term, right? You should be depressed when you realize how enormous it is. So we just published our uh, 2021 impact report. First time we've done one for the fund. It only counts eight companies, early stage series A and B investment, not a lot of money deployed in the grand scheme of things. So those eight companies in 2021 mitigated 270,000 tons of CO2. We need to be mitigating 2 billion tons of CO2. But I came back pretty enthused that day. If eight companies with a very small amount of money deployed in the early days of their voyage can already mitigate 270,000 tons as they scale out and hundreds of others scale out, there is hope.
Christian, you and I, I think spoke the first time, maybe almost about a year ago. And I remember at that time, you mentioned that you were really interested in the cooling space and looking for companies focused on cooling. I'd love to turn to Daniel and get to hear about the company he's building. But first, why don't we hear from you about the importance of cooling and also you know, why it's been such an interest for you? Yeah, so, so I mentioned earlier that, that we're kind of thematically based within the broad urban environment. We, we try to understand the big problem sets. Big problem set number one was cement and concrete. We dug into it, understood it, tried to find solutions, have now backed two companies. So my, my partners are all Danish. I always joke that I'm the token Latin American in the group. I care about <laughs> cooling and air conditioning. Uh, so I, I started doing the research into the space. Everybody's focused on heating, deploying heat pumps, but nobody's really understanding the magnitude of the cooling challenge. So just to bring it to life, right? The UK had its hottest day in history, was two weeks ago, 38 degrees. The UK does not have air conditioning in the majority of its building stock. That was not a pleasant day for the majority of people. And in some cases, actually a mortal day for some people. France heat waves have seen thousands of older parents die because they're, they're literally at home by themselves while their families were off on the beach and the heat is too high. Indian heat waves uh, this year, last year, make the wet bulb point, the humidity plus heat so high that the human body could literally not survive it unless you actually have cooling. So cooling is not a middle-class uh, aspirational luxury. It's, it is going to become a necessity for billions of people, right? So there's a Nature article that talks about how even if we achieve 1.5 degrees, 14% of the world's population will be exposed to severe heat waves year after year after year. And it gets worse if the, if the degrees go higher. So to satisfy that, we're going to have to increase the amount of stock of AC units. The IAA predicts about a 3x growth by 2050. That's 5.6 billion incremental boxes shipping out. And those boxes are necessary, but really, really bad. They're massively energy inefficient. So they're, they're going to put a huge load on the grid. And how do you power that huge load? Actually, the grid today in India, for example, couldn't even support the incremental 1.1 billion units that are going to get shipped. Two, they use these refrigerants that are super nasty, like 3,000 times worse than CO2. And third, when you actually need to cool yourself is in the middle of the dirtiest mix in the grid. So you combine those, these, those three things, and it's not only the energy load, it's the coal load in the grid, and it's the refrigerants that are being released. It makes it one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenge in the, in the next decades. And there's very little innovation happening inside the large OEMs to tackle that problem. So that's why I, I, I was really interested in innovation in the space, started looking around, spent yeah probably about a year trying to find the right company. And through that, got pointed to Daniel through multiple different avenues and ended up uh, co-leading his Series A recently. Daniel, this seems a perfect time to hear from you, to learn about Blue Frontier and the company that you're building. Tell us about the company and, and the problem that you're solving. Well, thank you. I'm totally inspired by what Christian just said. I followed a very similar journey and arrived at, at air conditioning as a critical thing that needed to be solved. I founded Blue Frontier in late 2017. Technology that led me to become an entrepreneur again from Blue Frontier came from National Renewable Energy Labs. And this technology was an air conditioning process that was many times more efficient than the conventional air conditioning technology. But it was driven by a salt solution, we call it a liquid desiccant, and this salt solution could be stored at very, with, and it had a lot, a very high energy density, meaning that with a very small amount of the salt solution, we could actually create a lot of cooling. And so the combination of the potential of storage plus 
the capacity to have very high efficiency air conditioning opened up my eyes to the capabilities that we may have to really tackle this enormous problem of cooling buildings, allowing people to be comfortable, and also mitigate for some of the worst effects of climate change that are being created by air conditioning and the grid that is being developed to power those air conditioners in the, in the, in the future. So Blue Frontier is dedicated to the commercialization of this unique technology. And from 2017 all the way until now, we have worked on taking that technology from basically a science project to a pre-commercial state. So we have redesigned the technology. We have focused on manufacturability, on lowering cost, and also create putting into the technology all the different characteristics that would allow us to tackle the market in a disruptive way. The goal of Blue Frontier ultimately is to have technology that will supplant the conventional vapor compression technology in the majority of the air conditioning market that exists today. So that's our, our ultimate goal. And if we do that, we would be basically creating the LED <laughs> equivalent, but for air conditioning. So we would be tackling dramatic reductions in our impact to the environment while we're trying to keep ourselves comfortable, healthy, and productive. Daniel, you know, many people think that we need to make some really big trade-offs and that air conditioning might just not be viable in the future. You know, Christian made a really strong point around how it's not a luxury, but as in a heating world, it's more and more of a necessity. Your technology is maybe pointing to a way that we can have cool, comfortable rooms and do it in a, a more efficient, a more sustainable way. So I'm curious, what sort of impact from a climate perspective can your technology actually create? What type of efficiency are you actually looking at? And what does it mean in terms of emissions reductions? Yeah, so we're looking at three times more efficient air conditioning based on the standard way that efficiency is measured in, in standard conditions, uh, at least here in the United States, which translates to practical reductions in energy consumption in buildings that go between 60 and 90%, depending on how you use air conditioning, the type of building and the, and the climate zone that you're in. That's a pretty huge reduction in overall energy bills and energy consumption. But we also completely eliminate the impact of air conditioning on peak demand. So one of the characteristics of the air conditioning usage and demand curve for electricity is that it tends to occur mostly towards the afternoon and into the late afternoon, and there's this growth. And that's because air conditioning, humidity levels start to increase in the afternoon, and also the heat energy that has impacted buildings starts entering buildings. Therefore, you have this latency associated with air conditioning that is, does not match renewable energy generation. And that peak load is a major contributor to the use of peaking plants that use fossil fuels, like Christian was saying. So we completely eliminate air conditioning's impact on uh, you know, demand during that period of time. And we make it match the renewable energy generation by utilizing our energy storage capabilities inside the system. So the combined effect of increased efficiency and shifting of the peak has an effect uh, overall of more than 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions compared to a conventional air conditioner during the lifetime of each one of our units. It's a substantial amount. Also, we have the capacity to shift away from 
refrigerants that are more than 2,000 times more powerful greenhouse gases than conventional refrigerants. In doing so, we're also creating the opportunity for eliminating that side of, of greenhouse gas emissions, which represents overall, mm-hmm. depending on what study you're, you read, but it's between 2 and 5% overall global emissions is expected to be uh, associated with, with the emissions of uh, refrigerants in general. Let's go deeper into that because that was actually my next question is that chemicals like hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, are used as refrigerants in air conditioners and are much more powerful at trapping heat in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. And what you're saying is is that your technology can actually replace those refrigerants with other materials. Tell us a bit about that. So the cooling that our system provides is actually coming from the salt solution interaction of that with air and the interaction of air with water. And that's what's creating the cooling. So we do not use refrigerants to create the cooling effect in our system. However, we do use refrigerants to regulate the concentration of liquid desiccant in our system. So as we cool, we we are creating a changing concentration in this liquid desiccant that needs to be brought back to a state where it can be cooled again and then stored for when cooling is required. We use much less refrigerant for that process because it doesn't require that much energy. Our systems would create around an 85% reduction in the global warming impact just on refrigerant, talking about refrigerant, of our system compared to a conventional air conditioner. Your technology is developed, you're funded, and so it's off to the races. Let's talk about market adoption and what it will take Blue Frontier to reach scale. It sounds like you've got a lot of things in the work, but I'm really curious about your go-to-market and, and your growth the strategy. The market is enormous and it's one of the fastest growing appliance markets in the world. It's the fastest growing use of electricity in buildings across the world. Based on what's happening in terms of warming of the planet, it may be a market that grows faster than predicted. Unfortunately, in, in the air conditioning market is very difficult because it's it's very entrenched among a very small group of people, a group of companies. And, um, and the way that air conditioning is bought, and in fact, most appliances in buildings has perverse incentives towards the uh, adoption of high efficiency new technology. We're targeting initially the commercial building market. We think it's the market most primed for disruption, for initial disruption. And in that market, air conditioning is bought either at the beginning of a construction of a building where you're bidding into being one of the air conditioners in the building or being that air conditioning in the building, the decision maker of what air conditioner is placed has a lot of influence. And in fact, many times it's the contractor who will not be occupying the building and will not be paying electric bills. And so they have a strong incentive to just by the minimum compliant to the building owner and to local laws system in terms of efficiency and the lowest cost that they can get. It's really difficult to get into the market that way. The other way is that, that, that and the most, the largest portion of the way that air conditioning is replaced in the market or bought into the market is when an air conditioner stops working. And at that point, basically a building owner is calling and saying, look, the air conditioner is no longer working to the, to the service provider. The service provider then comes in and and proposes the lowest cost air conditioner. The building owner, most of the time, is not the one that will be paying the electric bills because they have tenants inside the building that are paying the electric bills. So there's a perverse incentive just to get the you know air conditioning back into the building and without 
impacting the tenant and not worrying about energy savings. Recognizing this, we're planning to launch air conditioning as a service. Air conditioning as a service allows us to leverage the hyper-efficiency of our unit, plus the energy storage capabilities of our unit that has value not just to the tenant, but also to the utility, to create a subscription-based air conditioning replacement model that will have zero upfront cost to the building owner. And in doing so, we get to come in into buildings and say, we will replace existing air conditioning units with much more efficient units at zero cost to you and providing better indoor air quality, lower operational costs to the tenants in terms of utilities and overall better comfort. And then to the utilities, we can aggregate these this units that we are eliminating peak demand to work together as a virtual power plant and also then create a new revenue stream there. And so by bringing the distributed sort of incentives that exist among all the different players into a single place, which would be our company, we become beneficiaries of that value. So the potential uh, profit margins are higher, but we provide exactly what the building owner needs, what the tenants want and what the utility wants. So it becomes a win-win-win-win type of uh, situation. The roadblock that contractors often create is, is definitely relevant for the residential market as well. As a homeowner uh, has an air conditioning unit that breaks, they call a contractor, and what they're often showed and what they often only learn about is just what is the most readily available or the most known technology that the contractor can install the quickest and that has the least amount of questions about it. Just uh, get the job done and move on. Uh, and so I'm sure that that's part of the market that you will look at eventually as well. But I love the idea of air conditioning as a service and, and how you've really flipped the model on it. Regarding head. residential. So there's definitely a huge opportunity. The key to us is to create a complete replacement of existing technologies to create an air conditioner that is at the factory, lower cost or similar cost than a conventional air conditioner. So we have visibility to that but it comes with numbers. With economies of scale and scope, we can get there. And so the way that we're approaching the transition to residential is to create those economies of scale in the commercial building market where we can deploy. So every building owner owns multiple buildings and every building has multiple air conditioners. So the number of units that we're selling per deal closed is much higher. And the market is dominated by single types of units. So the majority of units, particularly in the United States, are rooftop units between five to 10 tons. 10 tonnage is, uh, is how much cooling they provide. So between five and 10 tons, rooftop units dominates the market of commercial air conditioning. So if we can go in and start replacing those units at volume, we fast approach that point of quality of cost between a conventional system and ours. And at that point, there's no longer a green premium and we start residential and we take over the entire air conditioning space. Christian, let's turn back to you. I'd love to look at this issue just from a bigger picture from a moment. Your investment thesis is all about creating sustainable, future-fit cities. And market adoption must be something that you think a lot about, including the need to convince existing building owners or asset owners to invest in retrofits or trying to find new business models like Blue Frontier has developed that really flips the issue on its head and creates a, a new way to finance and justify the, the investment. So I'm curious, 
As you look across this market, is this a problem that a lot of companies that you're looking at face of how do you get into replace existing infrastructure? And at the commercial or even municipal level, how much of a challenge is it for getting customers to replace legacy infrastructure? I was actually saying this to somebody last week that in this new guise as a climate tech VC, I'm in a way going back to my MBA roots because I'm doing significantly more thinking about financial engineering than I ever did as a generalist VC doing CAC LTV analysis for e-commerce companies. Because a lot of these technologies are hardware and the hardware should be financed to scale through non-equity dilutive mechanisms. And that's not something that VC offers. And to be honest, it's not something that a lot of the market offers because the technology doesn't exist, right? So a banker can't come to Daniel and look at his unit and figure out the lifetime value plus depreciation cost plus end of life value for that unit. It has never been shipped before. And that applies to a number of, our, of the companies' uh, technologies that we've backed. So you need to think about ways in which financing that's going to happen is actually being underwritten by the end customer. And we actually talked a lot about this with banks, like some of the world's largest banks, they're not going to underwrite it on Blue Frontier's credit risk. They're going to underwrite it on BlackRock and their 10,000 buildings across the U.S. So you need to bring the client in into that equation a lot earlier in the process. There's obviously the loan office in the U.S. There's grants here in, in Europe as well that can actually help with some financing, but that doesn't scale it to the level we need. Like We need like literally trillions of dollars being deployed. I mean, there's the Generate Capital, which is a fantastic organization. They do asset financing and project financing, but we need... 20, 50, 100 more generates to help scale all these technologies. And each of them has a very different use case. So when we were looking at the cooling space specifically, as we defined our thesis, the realization that we had is that this problem was, as Daniel just alluded to, was not going to get solved at the home. It was going to get solved initially in the commercial building, where somebody in that building has a PL line for cooling, because cooling is either a landlord-tenant obligation. You need to provide cooling at this temperature or an industrial requirement, you need to keep the storage facility cold for food or pharmaceuticals or whatever. They can compute the amortization of that upfront cost and then over time, uh, along with the energy savings. It's really hard for you and I to do that as a homeowner. You just look at the sticker shock, right, of the heat pump versus low-cost AC unit, you will go for the low-cost. Let's call it big finance and little finance. Big finance are like the Goldman Sachs and Macquarie's and generates deploying hundreds of millions and little finance of the decision maker, be it the household owner or the building manager. Last point I make is around the role that regulation is actually going to play in driving adoption of these technologies. Specifically, using Europe as an example, Europe's had a carbon tax for a long time. It's called the ETS. This, as of next year, that ETS gets applied to the operational energy use of buildings. So it's now finally going to be a price on heating and cooling that building, which has not been there before. So you'll be able to compute that 90% higher energy efficiency of my cooling unit translates to effectively, it's going to be about 25, 30 euros per ton. That is now a cost. So you can compute that cost against the savings you're able to obtain from the, some of these solutions. Ta in the US, it's, it's being driven more by tax incentives than it is by, by, uh, by, by taxes per se. So, but same thing, that's first adoption. That actually makes it easier for you to look at a solution and its deployment against doing nothing. Because doing nothing is no longer free. Doing nothing now has a cost. 
You know, I think Blue Frontier really exemplifies a transformative technology that is more efficient, that's cleaner, that's avoiding problems like peak demand. And I imagine this is the type of company that you're looking for as part of your broader thesis beyond cooling. As you look more broadly across the built environment space, what are some of the problems that you're really hoping that innovation can solve and really for the next 3 to 5 years within the space what are the types of opportunities that you're hoping to find as well as areas that you're just not seeing the investment or the innovation in yet and you really think we need a longer term focus on thinking about some of the big problems that we've tried to tackle I talked earlier on about cement and concrete we must fix it uh, or global addiction to to concrete generates 8% of world CO2 emissions So we've made two bets, I think breakthroughs on six or seven different types of solutions for the cement and concrete problem. That one for example that actually turns to biology. They have harnessed a bacteria that naturally secretes calcium carbonate and their science is figuring out how much gravel, how much bacteria and how much feed to mix to make bricks that actually have 90% less CO2. And they're now it's scaling out, it's called Biomason Space in the US. never thought I'd be looking at a biological cement company when we started looking at the problem set. Another problem set that we looked at was air pollution and electrification of everything, right? Uh it turns out that construction sites in urban environments or at least in London generate 35% of what's called PM10, which is one type of air pollution and 15% of PM2.5, which is a really bad air pollution. And if you dig down into what actually causes that air pollution, yes, it's dust and the fact that it's dirty and and stuff is being moved up, but actually the core driver is the fact that a construction site runs on a diesel generator that runs idle all day long and that diesel generator is super nasty there's regulation coming into play in, in the UK and Norway and other countries banning diesel from construction sites so how do you replace diesel well either you ha- you bring in an inverter and put in the construction site or you electrify it and we backed a company in Hong Kong called Ampt that swaps the diesel generator with a battery powered generator that also does off peak loading that actually removes all the pollutants and allows you to actually run your construction site longer because you don't have the noise which is a lot of the restrictions. So a non-obvious solution to the problem that we started looking at which was air pollution. Through that we we were also determining a couple of other problem sets. A deep dive that I'm actually as passionate as cooling was I'm also deeply interested in is water. I don't think it's a joke. There will be a global conflict around water rights. the west coast of the us already proving some of the challenges right with states are actually battling each other about who's taking out the water before it gets to where it's supposed to be going what technologies could we invest in that can have that blue frontier type potential in the water space steel's really hard that's 7% of co2 emissions we shouldn't be funding giant hydrogen factories for uh, green steel making but how do we think about solving that problem and the way we hacked steel with one investment is we backed a company that builds with wood they use actually less wood than traditional cross laminated timber through a lattice structure they use robots to build them more efficiently and at lower costs and they can build tall they can build 90 meter tall skyscrapers out of wood rather than cement and steel based out of luxembourg called leco labs and and that's the guess a fun part of the, of the job is start with a problem set identify possible solutions scour startup land plus um academia to try to figure out what's out there and then hopefully find the right team one that we did a deep dive on it's such a big problem but we have not done any investments in yet is windows you can put hyper efficient blue frontier air conditioning units on a building but if you still have single pane leaky windows on your building you're losing about 30% of the of the cooling through that window 
problem with Windows, I think SoftBank banked, uh, backed the window company. You need either a big factory to go build a lot of glass, uh, actually many factories, or you need to partner with one of the large glass manufacturers or get acquired early on for the, for the IP. So we haven't convinced ourselves of a venture style return case on any of those technologies. Problems that we want to solve, haven't found the right fit yet. Great. Well, hopefully some folks working on that problem hear this and know that you're looking for them. And uh, I'm glad you made a shout out also to the need to invest in water. We have an upcoming episode with Tom Ferguson, uh, who started Burnt Island Ventures, focusing on early stage investing in water. So stay tuned for that episode in a couple of weeks. I'd love to bring this home to our listeners. You're both experts on different aspects of the climate impact of our buildings, our homes, and infrastructure. What can everyday people do to support the transition to more climate-positive built environments? Daniel, maybe we'll start with you. I want to bring it back to one thing that you said earlier. You said maybe not everybody could have air conditioning, or maybe it's not a viable thing for everybody to have access to something, right? And I think the majority of the world does not live in a condition where they have options. And so the majority of people need to be given the option to be able to live in a manner that is consistent and sustainable with our environment, right? And those options right now need to be created. And that's exactly what my philosophy is with respect to Blue Frontier and how I look at my peers in the clean tech space. We wanna be able to create technology and businesses that address the needs of people to live full lives of dignity and allow them to go and chase their dreams into the future in a sustainable manner. And so that's how I view it. And I think that those of us that have the luck to be able to make conscious choices of between two things, we should make the conscious choice. It's a luxury to be able to do that. So do it. And then we should also push our politicians push our local politicians uh, and federal politicians and, and our peers to support things that are for our children and to be able to, for them to be able to live in a world that is, that allows them to dream. And we should give them that right. Thank you, Daniel. Christian, over to you. A couple of different actions, depending on what, what hat you're wearing. So at the individual level, I think the action, the single most important action you, you can take is to exercise your democratic right to a vote make it known that this matters. It had a significant impact in the German elections recently, had significant impact in the Australian elections recently. Politicians pander for your vote. And if they know that this actually matters to you, that will drive action at the political level. And you have this right, which many people in the United States decide not to exercise. The homeowner level, it really is just being aware and smart, like getting the data, right? Smart meters are actually really interesting because you actually get to quantify your energy use of your home and it makes it, it makes it a lot more tangible. And something as simple as a, as a Nest device allows the AI to figure out that lowering two degrees while you're not home actually is going to have a huge impact on your energy bill, but also therefore on, on climate. So there's already solutions that are fairly affordable that uh, the average homeowner could implement. As a business owner, something I'm seeing more and more, which I find really interesting from a behavioral change perspective, is shadow carbon pricing. So you're a PL owner in a factory, you have two PLs, the real PL, your cash in, cash out, and a PL that includes the cost of carbon for the choices that you made, which supplier you used, uh, uh, energy provider you have, and 
while some companies actually do give you bonuses based on, on shadow ta- carbon tax, others don't. It's just simply allowing you to understand this is what would have happened if I made a different choice. And there's a, a, number, a growing number of tools out there that are beginning you to allow to, A, account for that carbon, but also, B, give you better options. Everything from one that we backed that helps you do that in infrastructure projects, giant bridges and roads and rails, down, all the way down to small, medium businesses. And then finally, at geopolitical front, I am convinced that there is a already started but still quiet geopolitical battle around climate tech. There's one player that is not energy independent that can allocate massive amount of, of resources to ensure that it is and can ensure that others adopt its technologies. So if you want to be purely nationalistic, climate is not about saving the kid in Brazilian rainforest. It's about national politics and national security. And so therefore, investment needs to go into its space from both government, from large institutionals, from family office and endowments. And it's beginning, but I think we need to accelerate at a much greater scale. You mentioned investments. For everyday listeners, any tips on how they can start investing? Obviously, if they're interested in doing venture investments in the built economy, they should look at 2150. What else would you point everyday investors to do? Purchasing power is the largest driver of action. So be that making your next car an F-150 Lightning, or be that actually making conscious choices about how much meat you will or won't eat. From an investment perspective, I I do think there's people who have the ability to are going to get more and more democratic access to entities that invest into climate, be that banks, be that green bonds, um, be that venture capital, be that private equity. But I think that only applies to a small sliver of the population. There's a couple of um, funds being started in Europe. One of them is one of our LPs called Carbon Equity that's trying to democratize access. So you could be a young millennial who cares about climate. You have 20,000 savings. You want to deploy that. They become a funnel for you to deploy small amounts into climate tech. Uh, but we need something like that at a much greater scale to make it democratic. Christian, Daniel, thank you both so much for being here. Let's end with just some calls to action and help me fill these in is that if you are a built environment entrepreneur looking to develop a future technology for cities, you should check out 2150 and get in touch with the team there. Also, if you're investing in that space, I'm sure Christian and the team will be excited to talk to you. And Daniel, for Blue Frontier, you're looking for large building owners or cities or anyone that's interested in thinking about cooling their infrastructure at scale and is ready for a new technology and air conditioning as a service. Is is that right? Or any additions that either of you would make? I will add also, um, as new technology comes into market, it opens up opportunity for all sorts of business around the technology. And the business of air conditioning is just not just the box, everything that occurs around it and everything, and it becomes another way to touch the building. So it opens opportunities for all the other things you may wanna sell into a building. So we're looking for partners that will help us with deployment, installation, and enhancing the value stream of our system. We're not able to do that all by ourselves. so. If you are looking for a partner in that space that you can invest in helping us get this into market, we're also interested in hearing from you. On our side, people who want to start change their careers into the climate space, we're looking for people for our team. Uh, we continue to do so, but we also have a number of investments that are hiring across everything, right? So from manufacturing in a factory all the way to like AI coding. Uh, and everything in between. And that's available on the 2150.vc website. Fantastic. Christian, Daniel, thank you both so much for being here today. Really enjoyed this conversation and wishing you both the best of luck. Thank you. Thanks. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.